The following Art Trap production has been made possible in part by subscribers like you. Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi with Ken Deep, James Norton, and Louis Trapani. Welcome to the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi, and this is Louis Trapani, and with me is um, as People will, re- if, if you listen to, to Doctor Who Pachak, and this episode is going out on the Doctor Who Pachak feed, so you will be, those listeners will be already familiar with the next two gentlemen that I'm going to introduce, uh, who are co-hosting the show with me, is Mr. Ken Deep. Hello, Ken. Hello. It's my great pleasure to be here, especially that we're doing a podcast that will encompass Blake Seven. Yes. <laughs> Big smile. Big we, smiles. We, we on Doctor Who Pachak, we've been promising a Blake Seven special one-off episode. Only about three years now. For for about three <laughs> years, so um, you know, <laughs> it's better late than never. So it's it's with great pleasure that we finally can cover Blake Seven in this episode. But before we go any further, we got to go across the pond to Mr. James Norton, our fellow co-host. And again, you're familiar with him from Doctor Who Pachak, Mr. James Norton. Hello, hello. It's great to Good have to be. You. Yeah, always. Thank you for having me on here. It's it's a pleasure. And in our first episode, our introductory episode, our premiere episode, it's great to have all three of us together recording, doing a podcast on British science fiction, Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. As the name applies, as Ken said, it encompasses all British science fiction, which means we can cover outside. I mean, we'll cover Doctor Who here, as we do with Doctor Who Podshock, but this this podcast is more for covering all realms of British science fiction. There is so much to cover, and that expands the galaxy from the tripods to Torchwood to the Sarah Jane Adventures to um, Life Hitchhiker's on Guide to the Galaxy. Indeed. Life on Mars. Too much to choose from, in a way. Red Dwarf. Mm-hmm. Red Dwarf, classic. The Quartermass Experiment. Mm. The Day of the Triffids. Oh, all yeah. Sorts. That's good stuff. War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, quite. There's, Who knows how far we well, go back. <laughs> then uh, we should start, like we start Doctor Who Podshock with a, perhaps a news portion of the show, and let's go into some news. Very good. And I, I think, can you have some doctor? Uh, some oops, force to have it. <laughs> some British science fiction news to report as far as DVDs are concerned, right? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, the tripods. Th- this is this is something uh, that's kind of close to my heart because they've they've announced these before. They've taken pre-orders on this before, and then they've retracted it, and then they've put it back on the market, and they've retracted it again. Well, it looks like perhaps, maybe, maybe, fingers crossed, we're going to get lucky and get 
our Tripods The Complete Series DVDs out. Now, they originally released a two-disc Season 1 of Tripods, and that's still available. Actually, you can still find that on, on Amazon, amongst other uh, notable DVD retailers. But they want, they've been meaning to release a, a Series 2, and anybody who tells you that they released a Series 2, um, there, there wasn't an official release. There's been some bootlegs for sale on eBay and some places like that. They are not. Those are VHS knockoffs. But finally, Seasons 1 and 2, a four-disc DVD set with uh, some unknown bonus materials. It's, nothing's been announced yet as to what is going to be contained on the, the bonus materials. It's set for January 9th, 2009, the complete Tripods series. So I have my uh, – again, this was – Set to be released in September of 07. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, over a year overdue. So they must have they must have had something in mind for this. Uh, Tripods is a great show. Uh, victim of Michael Grade. Doctor Who fans are well aware of who Michael Grade is and, and what his significance or insignificance is to British sci-fi. Uh, but Tripods met the axe at his hand, uh, which is um, – sort of typical for his short-sighted thinking or lack of thinking. There were three books, three original books in John Christopher's uh, trilogy for the Tripods and the White Mountains. And each season encompassed one book. They did two out of the three of them. The show would have canceled itself after the third year. He canceled it after the second. So uh, that's why there's two seasons and the complete series is only two. And then actually John Christopher went on to write a fourth book. But I think that's a prequel to, uh, to the Tripods trilogy. So January 9th, 2009, a brand new DVD set. And hopefully will finally make its appearance, the, the Tripods Complete Series. That's my first bit well, of news. Well, let's um, just to go further on that. Now, we know that the um, book one or series one of Tripods, uh, the DVD has been available. Mm-hmm. For those that have already purchased that, Will Series 2 be available on itself? I don't think so. I think this is just a one... Uh, I think this is meant to replace the current release. This so anyone that has already bought Series 1, is, in a sense, has to replace that with this um, two-set, this two-series set. The impression that I have so far about this this new set is that it's remastered, there are extras, and it's uh, just basically a complete package of, of the Tripod series as a whole. And we don't know whether or not there's any plans for a Region 1 release. None as of yet. As, yes, I should have made note that this is a, a Region 2 release. As the um, original Series 1 of Tripods, the green cover, uh, is also a Region 2 only DVD, yes. Okay, well, um, I mean, it's good news. I would be better news, again, this goes along with my um, my same song that I sing all the time with Blake Seven. As far as DVDs are concerned, is that we're still waiting a Region One release, and we're hoping that um, that 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 tripods will get that love as well, and 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 so that people in the U.S. can. I mean, right now you can watch a Region Two DVD. It's just not. It's a bit cumbersome. It's most people can't just take a, a Region Two disc and put it in their set top. You know. A DVD player and watch it, you know, and um, True. if you determined but, enough, you can, but... But over the last couple of years, it's become more common to be able to play uh, any region on either on your laptop or um, uh, through 
uh, as we call other means. Sure. Uh, and again, for those that are interested, there's um, and if you do want to use your computer, VLC, the VLC play will play various different um, DVDs, regardless of region coding. And VLC uh, is like a boom to mankind. It really is. It plays <laughs> everything. I mean, it, you put anything in VLC. If VLC can't play it, chances are it's it just can't be played. <laughs> yeah. So we want to thank uh, thank the people behind VLC for that. And um, and it's just you know it's just a shame that these just aren't being offered in different regions. It's it's the, I mean there's nothing stopping them other than you know the, having to you know the, the cost involved. But there's I mean really these things should be just region free and just I mean it's it will solve the problem. You can sell them in, in different markets and more money for them to be made and, and, and fans have access to them and just open it up. Yeah, I've never understood that, but a, a, apparently it's supposed to um, prevent piracy. But well, if uh, anything, how's that it, working out for them? <laughs> well, well, originally exactly. the region coding was developed for feature films so that because, and, and this goes to the point that when a feature film is premiered in the theaters, it's not it's not always a worldwide premiere. So it could be released in the U.S. at one time and then released in the U.K. or Asia or, or, or different regions of the world in, at different times of the year. Or it could even be the following year. So they don't want people, so the DVDs can then come out uh, in the U.S., let's say, six months after the DVD, after the movie was released in, in the theaters. But it hasn't been released in the UK in the theaters yet, and they don't want people buying the people in the UK buying the DVD before it gets its theatrical release in well, the UK. Well, quite, but I mean, I, I don't understand the, the, the whole piracy argument, for one. But also, the, that argument itself is, is a bit weird, because Region 2 spans more than just the UK. It's the whole of Europe, yeah, it's well, Japan, it's I was just I using UK as Africa, an example. You know, I, 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 I'm just there saying I don't very understand simple- there's a simple solution to this whole release date issue. Just put the movie out on the same day. Well, you'd have thought so this day and age that it would be possible. And, and, but and they're like, well, you know, that's not always possible. This is the 21st century. I mean, give me a break. Well, exactly. And I mean, if, if you can, um, for instance, Doctor Who's a, a brilliant example. If, you can, if, if I can watch Doctor Who here as it airs and within literally an hour or two of it being aired, you through other means, can watch it in the States, then yeah, why on earth exactly. can't you? I mean, it's, really it's, it's happening either way. I mean, if you, you can turn a blind eye to it, but it's, it's happening. You know, people in the UK are watching American television as it comes out in, in the US and vice versa. So, yeah. And I, I mean, it's even, silly. Even Just, things like when, when movies are released on the same day, I, I remember uh, there's quite a bit of kind of... Uh, uh, banter between fans because say it comes out on the 9th of october or whatever the, the film then i can watch it in the uk five hours before you guys can in the u.s i mean it, it it's crazy it doesn't make any sense just do it all in one go have have region free and release everything everywhere at once it makes complete sense financially and i think that way you'll see if anything less piracy than we do now having these silly regions and 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 uh, you know quite a few of my friends have moved over to the states and things for 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 work or whatever and they're having to either buy region free dvd players or buy half of their dvd collection again or whatever so it doesn't make any sense it's crazy mm-hmm. but anyway that's my rant is over gentlemen uh, well i agree i think we the whole region coding uh, along with um digital rights management should be 
dissolved. It's only hurting the people that are law-abiding people anyway. So, I mean, the, the people that are going to pirate stuff and, and sell it in mass quantities and, and do stuff like that that's that's blatantly illegal are going to do it anyway. They're always yeah, going to get around it. Yeah. And well, quite. And but what really ticks me off with this whole um, with DVDs and piracy and things is I don't know if you have this in the States, but in the UK, it seems to be the case ever increasing that when you put a DVD into your player, the first thing that comes up is a message about piracy or some kind of like advertisement saying, oh, piracy is a crime or something. Well, hold on. You're, you have this on a licensed DVD, which I've gone out and bought, and you're targeting me as, as mm-hmm. uh, a pirate? Don't yeah. you think that's a bit stupid? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that they've, they've got it, the RIAA or whoever else have got it all mixed up. They've, they have got their heads on backwards. They're targeting the wrong people. But anyway, we're getting, we're, we need to stay on target because we're... <laughs> Getting sidetracked, and it's largely my fault, gentlemen. I'm no, sorry. No, no, it's not. It's the, hey, this is what you know. What attracts people to the podcast is us. Um, Our rambling nature, <laughs> <laughs> or my rambling nature. <laughs> Ken, any other DVD news? No other DVD news, but a a, um, a smooth segue would be into the War of the Worlds, which was the inspiration for John Christopher's The Tripods. He he did a sort of young adult version of H.G. Wells' legendary War of the Worlds. And mm-hmm. in that vein, Jeff Wayne, uh, the famous producer and musician, did a musical version of the War of the Worlds, a legendary album that actually you, Lewis, turned me on to some 20-something years ago. And they did a... Um, it came out in 1978, I believe, 78, mm-hmm. 79. Yes. Mm-hmm. Double album with um, it, very classic rock sounding album. Richard Burton did the narration, and uh, Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues, mm-hmm. who also did the theme to Star Cops, uh, one of the singers on the album. Well, they're having a 30th anniversary tour now. Some of the musicians that were on the original album, and of course, the legendary uh, Richard Burton, have passed away, so there are some, uh, some changes to the lineup. There are different singers and actors being involved although they use the voice of Richard Burton and they they've done some animation to to bring his character to life mm-hmm. uh, they're doing a 30th anniversary war of the world tour in the UK uh, it's June 2009 the war is mm. the website www.thewaroftheworlds is the the official website for Jeff Wayne's musical version of, of War of the Worlds, as opposed to worldworlds.com, which is probably still for the, the theatrical movie. Tom Cruise, the mm. Steven Spielberg movie from a, a few years ago. Mm. Uh, but this is a it's a great album. If you've never checked it out, it's it's um, for for Doctor Who fans who are familiar with um, Big Finish audios or B7 Blake Seven fans who are finish, familiar with B7's audio version. Of, of Blake Seven, this is that plus some music. It's a, a, a retelling, a, a different telling of the War of the World story. A lot of fun, great tunes, and I, unfortunately, they haven't they haven't come to the states with this tour. I think they did a few dates in Australia, but it's pretty much, I guess, due to the the complexity of the live show, mm. they haven't uh, traveled outside of the UK very much. It's uh, June 2009. They have the Dublin and the O2 Arena and um, Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, amongst um, many of the locations, including London and Cardiff. Um, 
So if you want to check out those dates, it's pretty cool. There's always information, always things going on there. I have to say that um, my friend, uh, Joe, she's a massive fan of the War of the Worlds, particularly this this musical version. version. Yes, and Mm -hmm. she went to go and see it around about a year ago, and she's going... On to, she's already got her tickets for the, the 30th anniversary and she was saying how it really is a terrific show that they put on um, and, and I guess from what she's told me about it you can just completely understand how logistically it would be very difficult to take everything and transport it over this, to the States and, and do it over there I think that they would have to kind of Set almost set everything up from scratch over to the states, but I really hope that they do it because from I haven't seen it, but from what she's told me about it, it really is utterly fantastic. And um, I mean, 30th anniversary. Um, I personally I can't believe it because I I grew up listening to, to, to segments of it. My parents, I think, both had the original uh, LP version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, now I feel really old. <laughs> yeah, well, it made me feel uh, a, l- a little bit old myself. So uh, it, it's worthwhile going to see anyway. Was was my point? If, if you yeah. if you're a fan, I mean, if it's you like love, a, it's like an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, but, but cool. It, yeah, it's a, if you yes, love not if, cheesy. If, if you have <laughs> if you have a taste to rock and roll, and you're obviously a, a, have an interest in War of the Worlds or science fiction, really just give this a try. Give it a listen give it a try. I, I think you'll like it. I, I know um, it was yeah. actually my, my brother that introduced me to it myself and I immediately fell in love with it and obviously, as Ken mentioned, he caught on to it and it's really a gem. You were actually driving was... to a Blake 7 convention when you played it the first time. <laughs> well, it's it's because of its length. It was a, at the time, it was a, um, well, I think when it came out on CD, I mean, at the time it was a double album release so you can have and it's a, a double drive. CD release. Yeah. So you can drive off and and just play it from the beginning to end and have um, a great a, a great adventure while you're having a real life adventure. Yeah, they, <laughs> they've done a few remix albums of it, and there's actually a, a great box set for those who are are fans of it already, who are already familiar with the music. There's a wonderful box set. It includes, I think it's a four or five disc set. It has, um, of course, the the two albums, but there's also some supplemental material, some deleted scenes, some alternate takes. A song that wasn't used. Um, they have some of the f- foreign narration. They, they released it in other countries with different um, different narrators. Well, and it's great that it has a resurgence because over the last few years we've seen other new releases of it, the, the remixes, now the concerts and all that. Because for so many years it was a forgotten gem or a, a looked over gem, and that's a cult why classic. I, yeah, and it, it's great that it's getting some of the recognition now that it didn't get back in the late 70s when it was originally released. This isn't really news, but it's news to me, and, and, and since Ken's here, I kind of want to um, you know, take advantage of his knowledge here that, that he may have on this. For the past 10 years, I've been getting um, DirecTV, which is a satellite service, and I switched over to our local cable service for for that, and um, for reasons that had to do with economical reasons and whatnot. But in that transition, I lost some channels, which one of which was BBC America, unfortunately. One of the um, some of the the high definition channels that the cable service offers is um, part of the Zoom network. Boom, with Zoom, Voom network, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So, and one of those channels is a family channel, or I think it's called Family Den or Family Room, and they're showing uh, two British science fiction classics, Jerry Anderson classics, Thunderbirds and UFO. Mm-hmm. And they're just not, this is a high definition channel. So these are, and, and again, I don't know how long they've been showing it. I've just made the transition myself. So it's great seeing these two series that, that were released, that were originally produced on, and created in the, in the late 70s, in the late 60s and early 70s in high definition format where it, it's really, it has to be seen to believe. It's not just H, like for just, if I can just single out now uh, UFO of the two, it's not just HD. It's also digitally remastered, so it's in digital Dolby in stereo, and it's also shown in full um, six by nine aspect ratio screen. And it's not many times like if we'll see like Doctor Who shown in that ratio, they cropped because to fit the screen. Doctor Who was shot mostly on video, and and in order to fit that onto the screen, they're working with a four by three ratio. And in, not to get too technical, but you have to crop the the, the top and the bottom of the screen to make that to fit into that format in full screen six by nine here. I'm not sure of the original stock that was used as far as the film goes for Thunderbirds and, uh, and UFO, but uh, you're not getting the, the, the tops and bottoms of the of people's heads aren't really being cropped out. It really looks good. And the quality is really there. And so Ken, I, I just want to know, I, I know cable vision and optimum services in the Long Island, or it's they're not just in Long Island, they're in the Northeast. I have uh, f- friends and acquaintances that span up into Connecticut and whatever, and they have the service. So Zoom, or Voom, rather, I don't know. Zoom is a, <laughs> is a children's show that I grew up with. I guess that's why it's stuck in my head. But v- Voom started off as a, uh, initially as a satellite service, but now mm-hmm. it's um, shown on the cable services. Is it just limited to this area? Or do you know its breadth or... Um, well, it was it was originally cre- created as a satellite service, and for whatever reason, that didn't take off. And <laughs> no pun intended. The parent company of Voom, whom I work for, is Cablevision. So they're operated out of the New York area. But I guess when they were when as Cablevision is trying to expand its HD lineup, they took the channels that they'd already created, and and put them on their own, their their homegrown service, their own services. Mm-hmm. But it is available for any cable company to take. To my understanding, there are cable companies that you know anybody can, any cable service around the country, if they wanted to, add these channels to their lineup. Like any other cable company, they would you know pay their subscription fee or whatever and and do their thing. As to the extent of it, off the top of my head, I don't know, but I know that there are other companies. And and there's even a Voom channel that goes to Europe now. Um, so that's that's great. I mean, the reason why I ask is just because I and know and UFO has been on since day one. It's great to see these gems in such um, treated in such care, and it's it's really incredible watching. I mean, part of, I mean some of the illusion is lost. I mean, they did uh, Derek Meddings who did the um, Meddings who did the uh, the model works for UFO and and Thunderbirds and all that went on to do James Bond and all that. I mean, it was incredible work. I mean, here seeing it in high definition, sometimes it, it's obvious that it's models. It's a little but, too good. <laughs> but, but, but you can appreciate it. I mean, me, as a, I grew up uh, as, as a kid, I built models and tried to make them realistic. And here you can see it in high definition. It's really great it, to see it in that form. The treatment that was given to it is really fine. And if you haven't checked out Thunderbirds or UFO, check it out. What's interesting is that they're grouping these two together. 
Thunderbirds is adults can appreciate it and watch it, but it's pretty much aimed at children, I think. And, and not to say that adults can't appreciate it, but <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that they're pairing these two together in a sort of like a, a children's two hour sci-fi salute, whatever. But UFO really tackles some serious adult. I mean, I think children can appreciate it, but it's when if you watch it, you'll see that um, it deals with issues of um, without giving too much away. But the lead character is sometimes um, there's one story where he has to struggle whether to save his own son's life or put the interests of Earth in front of him. And these really classic struggles that perhaps children won't be able to appreciate it until later in life. It also doesn't shy away from being from violence if need be or, or whatever. It's a series that maybe when you were younger you liked, but now you can appreciate it on another level. There's some interesting characters. I mean, it, it does have its flaws as well, and I won't go into a whole review of the whole series, maybe at, a, at another time, but it's just great to see both these series, Thunderbirds, and they're two great Jerry Anderson series. Well, um, Jerry Anderson, uh, Jerry Anderson's always put quality together, and, and on top of that, the thing that's always attracted me to British programming and British sci-fi and British children's shows is that they never speak down to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, American American shows in particular over the last few years, uh, last decade, maybe a little bit longer, uh, with children's shows in particular, cartoons and things like that, they, they're almost – they border on condescending. You're, mm. They assume that, the, that children are not smart and yeah, that's so not true. Yeah, yeah. But I mean and it's, it's a shame so- because Lewis and I um, – I, I kind of have to contrast this with James, but Lewis and I grew up in a time where at least the Saturday morning shows are some of the things that we watch as kids. Well, um, sometimes insulting. <laughs> sometimes we're insulting and sometimes we got some good things. I mean, you know, American uh, PBS in America with things like Sesame Street and Electric Company, there was always uh, a mark of integrity being set there, but then there was also a lot of junk. But the Saturday morning cartoons, I mean, many times they would try to dumb it down by introducing, you know, a magical dragon along with the serious characters. Like, uh, I mean, what we're happy about, fortunate about, is that when in the early 70s, when there was the Star Trek animated series, they didn't do that. They kept uh, they kept a serious note and told you know serious stories again in a format that that um, that children can grasp. But they didn't dumb it down. Uh, these could have well, been live action episodes, and they didn't have a, a stupid little magical dragon that became an, a regular character on board the Enterprise. They didn't do that, but many so, times they did. And and when you would see transitions from um, adult science fiction to Saturday morning science fiction, they'll introduce something, you know, to play down to children. Well, of course, they did that with Star Wars, famously with Jar Jar Binks and all that nonsense. But, I mean, it really it is a shame because you, you talked about Star Trek, the animated series, but I couldn't help but think about Star Trek when you were talking about UFO, um, mm-hmm talking about how they would use a lot of adult concepts and a lot of um, things that perhaps would only really appeal to adults or that adults would only understand. Star Trek was very much in the same vein, mm-hmm. at least the, well, I think all of the series, but particularly the original series, because it, it was so revolutionary at the time, because um, Gene Roddenberry would, would um, cover very complex issues, very uh, political issues, but because they were in outer space and because it was a different time and and uh, things in, in themselves were inherently different, he could deal with, with, with 
issues of, of race and and of um, differing nations and so on and, and things that were overtly political behind this kind of smokescreen. Um, and that was what attracted me as a kid to Star Trek, aside from, you know, the fact that they were in outer space and, and got to, to fight and, 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 and all the other terrific things about the show, but it was the fact that it, it never, ever treated you like you were stupid it always um it had a lot of of good science behind it largely okay some uh fantasy there but again you have to have some artistic license um but the fact that it, it would give you very political concepts and, and and a backstory and a moral which i think perhaps in even in british television uh, for kids these days i think is is lost which is a shame Again, even UFO tried to do that too. They, uh, there were some scientific concepts in that that we didn't see again in science fiction until maybe the abyss. Like um, the aliens in their UFOs would breathe, they would have a liquid environment that would instabilize them through their long journeys. And um, again, um, I, I think it was the abyss that we saw that again where yes. they would, their green tinted um, skin was solely due to the liquid environment they were in. It's a good series to watch, and if you're a fan of maybe um, Space 1999, this preceded this. What's interesting is that this UFO premiered in 1970, but it takes place 10 years in the future, in 1980. So it's always good to see um, when when a series tries to predict what the future is going to be like and what they got right and what they got wrong. And, um, you know, they, the they're all driving. are always a train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're always, they're, in the, all the vehicles look like DeLoreans with the car, with the, uh, the doors that, that open um, upwards, you know. Yeah, which, like a Lamborghini or yeah. something almost, yeah. It's, but it, it's, it's pretty it's interesting in that fact, the fashions that they chose and, um, and again, the technology that's used. And it's, it's an interesting show and it's worthy of checking out and, um, and give it a few episodes. And it's, you know, and it's one of those series that, that treats characters. And well, in some ways they, they do them well. In some in other ways, there was one character that was lost and without any explanation. But there are others, background character, what we would know as red shirts in Star Trek will actually play a major role maybe down the road in a few episodes. It wasn't like where miscellaneous characters would change from episode to episode. You would see the same miscellaneous characters, and then later on they may have a juicier role. Or it, It's something It's interesting to watch from the beginning to the end and how, um, and how they treat it. So, um, mm. again, check it out if you have. And, and seeing it in high definition, um, they remastered the audio. It's in digital stereo now. And both Thunderbirds and um, UFO, check it out if you have um, Zoom. Room. Right? Room. <laughs> I can't get it right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe um, they'll be released on Blu-ray as well, if they're not already. I don't know. I know they just recently uh, remastered Space 1999, so maybe Jerry Anderson is, is That's working great. on that. Would be, um, unfortunately, it... Just um, maybe about three years, four years ago, I bought the UFO series on DVDs, and now watching them in high def blows away the DVDs, and I'll have to rebuy them again. But it's, this is the the song that we cry all the time when um, you know we have we keep on repurchasing what we already have. All right, <laughs> all right. I have one more piece of news before we get on to our. We have an interview with yes. Ben Aronovich coming mm-hmm. up in the show, and the last piece of news, which will segue us perfectly into that Great. segment is a, uh, a piece of Blake seven news. Uh, Gareth Thomas and Paul Darrow, Blake and Avon respectively from Blake seven, the, or the classic Blake sevens have recorded, um, audio books 
of some of the early episodes of Blake 7. Gareth Thomas reads um, The Way Back and Space Fall, and Paul Darrow reads um, books that cover Cygnus Alpha and Time Squad, the first four episodes, and that's for BBC audiobooks. So we're looking forward to the release of, of those. That's uh, that's pretty cool. I guess with the success of uh, the audio books being read uh, for Doctor Who, they're uh, investigating uh, Blake 7 audiobooks. Hopefully that will continue. So looking forward to buying those and supporting those, and we'll get more of them. So pretty cool. On that note, before we get into the interview, I want to thank the New England Fan Experience. Um, they're our sponsor for this show, and to bring everyone's attention to it. It's um, November 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. It's at the High Regency in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's right outside of Boston. And to that end, they're going to have um, various uh, science fiction guests, and one of which is, um, if you're into British science fiction, will be of interest. It's a Doctor Who guest that they're working on, which we can't announce um, until it's officially confirmed. So, Stay tuned for that, and if you're a listener to Doctor Who Pachak, you'll be informed about that, and if um, we'll have an announcement on our site, thegallifrandembassy.org or pachak.net will bring you to the, um, the official website for Doctor Who Pachak. At this convention, there's Robert Picardo of Stargate Atlantis and Star Trek Voyager. There's George Takei, from, obviously from Star Trek, um, who played Sulu. Marana Bakarin, um, who's uh, familiar to Stargate SG-1 and Firefly viewers. And Mark Gooded from Lost in Space. And again, stay tuned for a Doctor Who announcement. For more information, go to www.nefe.us. And that's a New England New England fan experience. Yes, yeah, fantastic. Uh, Lewis and I went last year, and we had a great time. And uh, we'll be back again this year. So, if you're in the Boston area or in the Northeast, for that matter, anywhere in New England, it's a it's a quick and easy ride over there, and a great time. A very well run convention. So we're looking forward to to being yeah, there they again. Have, uh, Seventeen years history under their belt. So you know, and it's they know what they're doing. But it's a fan experience it very much so it's run by fans for fans no this is, is not a corporate thing this is this is by people who know what the hell they're doing yes it's the real deal basically <laughs> the real deal i like that <laughs> so we'll be right back with our interview with, with ben aronovich louis trapani here at the time that we previously recorded the last segment we were unable to announce the doctor who guest for the new england fan experience I'm now pleased to say, and I can announce it, that it's Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor from Doctor Who, at the New England Fan Experience. So uh, check it out. Once again, Peter Davison! Doctor Who Podshop. Okay, well, let's do it now. I <laughs> Uh, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifreyan Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah. Who blew that? <laughs> I'm the Doctor. And who are you? And who are you?
before we go into our interview, I'm here to tell you about a special offer to all Doctor Who Podshock listeners and Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi listeners. This special offer comes to you via Mike's Comics in honor of our premiere episode of the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. It's through uh, special arrangements between Doctor Who Podshock and the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. This is a special offer for all our listeners from Mike's Comics for the Blake 7 New Audio Dramas Season 1. The new Blake 7 Audio CD series by B7 Media is available from Mike's Comics, and their first season is available now with an exclusive slipcase. Now, these are three releases in the series. The third comes with an extra DVD, including interviews and other extras. In 2008, Blake 7, the early years, debuted as a prequel to Blake 7, the series. It is expected to have three total releases by the end of the year. In 2009, we're expecting the main series to continue beyond the first three releases. With at least three more series titles already in the works, expected to be released by mid-year. The three-release Blake 7 Season 1 audio CD set, starting at $55 postpaid. This is a special offer once again. Mike's Comics has set up a special webpage for this special offer. To access this webpage, if you're listening to the Hands podcast, you can just click on the uh, the link in if you listen to it in iTunes. If not, go to Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi.com slash B7. That's B as in Blake, or the letter B, 7, the, the numeral 7. And that will bring you to the page. Once again, Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi dot com slash b7 but wait <laughs> there's also more there's also we're also running a special contest now what's going to follow after this is an interview with ben havanovich and based on this interview which you're about to hear we're going to ask a couple questions on the other side of the interview we're going to ask you to email those answers to us from the correct submissions received for this Mike's Comics contest, one grand prize will be the first season of Blake 7 audio CDs that we were just talking about. Then, there'll be 10 additional second place prizes of the first CD only of the early years. But we'll explain further on this on the other side of this interview. Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. And for Podshock listeners, Doctor Who Podshock listeners, you're familiar, of course, with Mr. Louis Trapani, Mr. James Norton, and myself, Ken Deep. And we're honored to be joined by Ben Aronovich. He is uh, one of the legendary writers of Doctor Who and now a valuable part of the brand new envisioning of Blake 7. Welcome, Ben, to the show. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thank well, you for being 
we we we've uh, we talked for a few seconds before we went on air, and so we're just gonna lead off with it right off the bat. So we move it move past it. What's the scoop? We know that the Blake Seven is has returned, re-envisioned in audios, but there's a rumor that this could lead to a, a, a brand new television show. Is that true? Um, well, I, I'm constrained by what I can say. But what I can tell you is that Sky Television, that's the uh, British Sky Television, have commissioned two episodes uh, worth of scripts and have put development money into a new series. Um, once that's done, then they will make the ultimate decision as to whether to go with the full project. Um, um, they're very keen on it. We're very keen on it. But uh, this is television, so you never know what's going to happen until you're actually shooting. Nothing is fixed. Do you think that the success of what is happening in the audio world with the with the audio drama of the re-envisioning of Blake 7 got the ball rolling on this? I, I think the audio has had a, had a significant impact in the sense that a lot of people were very skeptical about whether there was an actual audience for Blake 7. Uh, you'd go into uh, conferences and meetings and people would say, well, you know, we remember Blake 7, wobbly sets, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's all very 70s. No one's going to want to listen to or watch that anymore. And I think the audio has kind of made it the point that there was still an audience. There was not still an audience. There was a new audience for, for Blake 7 and that it was still a very uh, very good core concept. And um, it's a very hard-nosed world. So you know, nostalgia gets you so far, but there's nothing like having a good core concept that you can brand to uh, get the juices flowing in the international television market. You, you're at the, the start of re-envisioning Blake 7. You're one of the key members of a team of people that are that are putting this together. Where do you make conscious decisions between what you retain from a classic series like Blake 7 and a, and a new envisioning of, of something like this? Well, the important thing is always not to throw away the baby with the bathwater. And the problem is always, you know, one person's bathwater is another person's baby. So we've tried to keep what we see as the best aspects of Blade 7, and not just in the macro elements, not just in the rebellion against the Federation, in the, the use of anti-heroes, which have actually become fairly standard in the last 20 years or so, mm. but also in the kind of like the minor details, in the characterization of Villa, in the characterization of Avon, in, in the way that you have this kind of dysfunctional family in space. And... Uh, uh, and the little things that we like. So we're quite conscious that there are some things that are really, really good that you don't want to lose. But then there are plenty of things that are kind of just don't work anymore or never really worked the first time. And, and you just quietly kind of drop them and think of, try to think of better things to do with them. And also to take ideas that never really were very well developed just because of the style of television they had in those days and trying to make them, you know, develop them slightly more, give them more depth, give them more background in, in the manner that, say, Battlestar Galactica does or mm. Heroes does in order to sort of like, take a, a, a sort of trope from another, from another genre, if you like, and then, and then elaborates on it so that it becomes uh, something new and something fresh. I'm waving my hands around in case you didn't know. <laughs> I, I say that word. Thank you for the very, clarification. Very, very good gestures with the fresh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame it's not a video podcast and, and only yeah. an audio podcast. Oh, technology. Just not keeping up with me. 
the Blake Seven audios did not suffer from this. I mean, by listening to um, uh, well, if we first let's let's just back up a little bit because um, some of our listeners may not be familiar with what these Blake Seven audios are about. Originally, they were our uh, radio dramas on BBC Seven Radio. Is that right? They're actually original full-cast dramas that were released on... Uh, they originally released the first set, were released as five little five-minute segments on Sci-Fi, on the Sci-Fi website. So they actually released as webcast. It was quite a revolutionary um, uh, broadcast arrangement and had involved us actually coming up with brand-new contracts for equity, which is a whole other story that I wasn't involved with. And um, then they were picked up by BBC Seven and we sell them as CDs and they're distributed in the US. So, and we're looking at, we're always looking at new ways of kind of broadcasting them. So we're we're on a new kind of multi-platform company. And those that are familiar with the television series that that Terry Nation developed um, 30 some odd years ago, these, the, the, the audio dramas that we're speaking about now are taking that story basically um, re-envisioning them a bit, but they still have the basis of the that original foundation that Terry Nation had, um, you know, originally, you know, came up with. And um, But the strong point about it is that it's still very much based on characters and their relationships. And uh, I think that really comes through on these audio dramas. And by listening to them, it it really uh, paints a picture in your mind. And, um, and, and some of the things that you can do in the audio dramas, you couldn't do back then on television and, and and I know this may sound cliche to say but the special effects in the radio series surpasses what they could do you know visually back then and um and kudos to the production team for doing that yes yeah, so Alistair Locke who is our sound designer did a, a splendid job we call it widescreen radio that's what we call it <laughs> Because you just get, he just, it sounds like a feature film. It sounds like you're kind of listening to it. It's a very weird expression, I know, but it, it sort of sounds like you're watching a, a feature film, and it always impresses me. And and those of you that have headphones, it really does, it is really worth it. If you have a CD and headphones, to so plug in the CD and listen to it on headphones, it, it, it's quite incredible what he has done. Mm-hmm. The sound design on it is spectacular. Mm-hmm. It's been recast. We're not talking about the original actors that were in the television series. It, it still captures you, and I, I think that everyone that's involved, uh, as far as the, the actors involved, really did a good job with the medium, with the audio medium. And um, Oh, yeah. Well, we were very pleased with it. I mean, they were a lovely bunch to work with, and um, actors love doing audio because you don't have to change costumes and hang around for waiting for lenses <laughs> to be changed. So it, they, they get together. It's more like a theater experience for them. So they all get to hang around in the green room and be, be actors and, and mingle and, and, you know, go and do their performances. And, and so they're a real joy because a happy actor is a, you know, is a joyful actor. And, and I had such a wonderful time recording them, but, and I think the rest of the, the crew did. And I think it shows. I think it just shows in the performances of these are people who, who are having a good time. And, and I'm, I'm glad that comes through. And you're right. In the, there is a show very much about the personalities. You know, the, you know, in a way, the spaceships and everything else are secondary to the personalities of the people in the spaceships. You, you said that you wanted to retain some of the best qualities and jettison some of the qualities that perhaps just didn't seem to work. What did you go into when at the start? What was one of the things that right at the at the front of your list, the top of your list, um, that you wanted to correct, make better, utilize? Well, the first thing we wanted to do is we wanted to make the, the Liberator bigger, badder, scarier, and not quite so convenient. 
become, a, you know, very <laughs> convenient in the TV series. They turn up, there's a Limrea. They have one little brush with a psychic defense system, and that's basically it. There's this huge alien spaceship, and they just wander around and going, oh, we've got a great big alien spaceship. Isn't that nice? And, and we felt that you could get a bit more mileage out of how big and creepy and alien and this, this ship was, and how it was a product of a completely different culture, and you didn't know who they were, and you weren't 100% trusting it. That, that was one thing we were actually determined to do. The other thing we were determined to do was Jenna's character, which sort of faded, is probably yeah. the best way to describe it, during the course. It started off very strong in the TV series and then kind of faded into the tea lady. Yeah, they, they started and, making her the sex symbol. Mm -hmm. And once she became the sex symbol, she stopped being the gritty character. Yes. So, so we we wanted to we wanted to make her rougher and tougher, and also to differentiate her slightly from the other characters. One of the things we were very careful to do was to give everyone different motivations. So we didn't want Jenna's motivations to be too similar to Avon's, because you know because they're nearly all criminals except for Blake. We didn't want them all to be the same kind of criminal or the same kind of person. We wanted them to have different motivations and to be on the liberator for different reasons. And so we, we put, put a lot of attention into sort of uh, Jenna's background as we are putting into Cammy's background when Cammy turns up. Mm. That was the other thing. I, I think people were, were a bit worried about where Cammy was. Cammy's coming, trust me. That's right. You guys are, in, uh, are about to launch the second season. That's right. We, uh, we're going into the studio soon. To, to launch the second season. We've done uh, three prequels in the meantime to keep you all happy. Now, one of them, well, only one of them is released so far, right? When Villa met Can? That's right. That's a little two-hander between Michael Keating reprising his role as, uh, as, as, as Villa uh, and my brother, in fact, reprising his role as Gan. Mm -hmm. And that was And, and a great job, by the way, on, on, both, on both halves. Thank you. But Michael Keating was wonderful. It was so great to meet him. I'd never missed him before. And and the, uh, the main problem was is he speaks very quickly. He has a very old-fashioned kind of patter, uh, and it was like listening to one of those 40s uh, Pressburger films, and, and, <laughs> and it ended up being much shorter. I had to go away and write more material because it was too short, <laughs> and because he just did over all the lines. You know, what would have actually taken another actor half an hour to do? He did in 20 minutes, and so we had to go and write more material for him. So, so but that way, I was very happy to do that. When that when that CD first came out, I was I was kind of um, maybe mistaken in thinking that that this was going to be a chance to have um, the classic cast members come aboard for for different spots and for sort of um, like like. Uh, uh, well, yes, we were we were. So, what's the name of the, of the character um, in Battlestar Galactica? You were thinking of uh, we were going to do it like the guy who was Apollo. Right. Yeah, right. like yes. cameos, essentially. Basically. Yeah, we were, we were thinking of doing cameos. And, but the thing is, Michael Keating, how could we do the cameo of somebody else with Michael Keating, except it was maybe like <laughs> Villa's older fa father or something. I mean, it was like... Yeah. And, and it just sort of came together. It came together. Dean wasn't available. Michael was available. And we just went, oh, bugger it, let's do it. And so we did it. And we knew <laughs> that it would be terribly confusing. But we couldn't pass it up. <laughs> yeah. It was that simple. We couldn't... We we didn't say no, no, we don't want Michael Keating, he's too good. We'll get somebody, you know, not as good as Michael, no. So, so we I, had to I do it. My my initial reaction was I was I was trying to figure out if this was supposed to be a bridge between the series or whether this was 
purely uh, something for, for exploring for the sun uh, boys. Uh, yeah for, <laughs> for exploring the character but it is actually just Michael Keating being a part of your new world it is Michael Keating being a part of our world Villa was the least changed character in the writing of all the characters in the entire series the one that we didn't want to mess with was Villa the most perfect if you like in, and unfixable and you know there was nothing we made him slightly less kind of um, uh, cowardly in, in the sense that we made him slightly less he's slightly more kind of more of an all-rounded criminal rather than just mm. someone who runs away and breaks things open but um, he, we didn't want to mess with that character it was a brilliant character you know so well, over the course of the, of the 52 episodes of the, the classic series, Villa's character, um, while be, always being – Michael Keating was always amazing in it, but, but different writers handled Villa in very different ways. Some made him that smart, uh, almost cat-like in his cowardice, meaning that he, 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 would, he was very sure-footed. He wouldn't go and do things unless he thought it was safe. And then others just made him a bumbling fool sometimes. And I, I preferred the smarter, intelligent, I'm not going to get myself into trouble type of character. Yes, I'm not stupid more. and I'm not going. Was yeah. Phrase. <laughs> yeah, and, and those, to me, that was always the better villa as far as the writing goes. I think yeah, that was the villa we wanted. That was the villa we were aiming for. We always wanted that villa. That was, as far as we were concerned, that was villa. The others were kind of like aberrations in the writing. That was certainly the villa that was envisaged by, by Terry Nation and Chris Boucher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, this is what happens when you write, you know, you have a lot of people writing a series. You get uh, interpretations of characters, varying interpretations of characters. And um, you either stamp very hard, which, in which case you risk having kind of a terrible uniformity of style between your, your episodes, which can be good in a soap opera, but, you know, it's less good in a drama. And uh, or, or you, you just put up with it as something that just happens. I mean, it probably it was allowed in the 1970s. These things happen much more. If you look, watch episodes of Starsky and Hutch, you know, the, the characters can veer wildly in episodes of the secondary characters could feel wildly in episodes of Stark and Hutch and it, it was just sort of more acceptable in those days and now you know we you just wouldn't do that no one would do that now everyone would have you'd have a book on Villa it would be 18 pages long and it would explain exactly who he was where he was coming from and uh, what he wouldn't do and we'd all sit you know we'd all sit in the writer's room and discuss how that scene was going to play out and and that's the way you do things now. But back then, they just didn't do things like that. It, yeah. it was much less structured. Chris Boucher probably just went, no, no, I no, can't, can't be bothered. <laughs> 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 well, I also uh, wanted to, to uh, tip my hat to you on some of the nods in When Villa Met Gan. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of things to take joy in as a as a big fan of the classic series. You're moving a, a particular story forward in that you're exploring the history of when Villa met Gan. But there are there are a few tips of the of the cap there to uh, to the classic series, little inside references and things like that. And and some of that brought some of the biggest smiles to my face. You know, you would sit and listen to the, the characters and the, and the way they're they're talking and little bits of dialogue. So. Top notch. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, and if you haven't picked up when Villa met Gan, but it was um, it was well worth the effort. You know, it took me a little time to to finally hunt it down. And Mike's comics <laughs> had it, and they finally got it to me. And 
listened to it and I was like, oh, yeah, this is yeah, it. If you're in the States, Mike's Comics is your friend. Mike's <laughs> Comics, apparently. They've really been the, at the forefront of getting this new Blake 7 series into America. And, and, and thank goodness, too, because I don't know where we'd be, you know, if, if someone in the States didn't take a chance on, on this vision. So thumbs up. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly worried that there's somewhere out there, there's someone in, in, in America who doesn't have a copy who wants one. This is what keeps me awake at night. Cause, <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's like distribution is, you know, distribution on a small scale is, is extremely difficult. Mm. I mean, everyone's geared to kind of like, you know, the latest Madonna album. It's extremely difficult to get some audio drive, especially, you know, the big distribution networks. You say, I've got this audio drive, and they, they look at you, and they're not really sure what you're talking about. It's like you're talking about a different planet or something. And I think the way you'd have to, like, pitch it as a, a book on tape or something, you know, something they yes, can they, they, they go, oh, you mean, it's, you mean it's a talking book? No, it's an audio. You see, in England, we, we have the BBC does drama all the time. So you go, oh, it's like the BBC. They go, oh, it's like that. Oh, I see. But in America, apparently, uh, you don't have that much radio drama anymore. Uh, zero. So, zero radio drama. Yes. I, I thought you still had NPR. I thought they did a bit of drama uh, here and there. More, more talk than anything else, but it's just... But there, there's an audience for it, as Blake 7, as Doctor Who, as... Um, other science fiction shows have proven uh, science fiction fans in general are imaginative people. Mm -hmm. So to, the idea of just using audio as a medium, they're, they're usually bookworms. Uh, so all we're doing is we're, we're, we're a step between book and movie or television is that in between ground is, is an audio drama. It's, it's a, it's a, a piece of drama just played out, but not, in a visual, you know, realm, and I, I think sci-fi fans are running to this because they get what you're doing. They get that you can go halfway. I'm, I'm very glad. I always thought it'd be like an excellent thing for those times. I remember about America is driving very long distances, much further yes. distances than we driving over here, and I thought it'd be perfect. I'd have an audio drummer in there, keep me going well, while I'm going ride, 55. If you take a train, just as good. Oh you know, yeah, you know. train, yes. Close your eyes, put on your headsets, and and you know be taken away uh, during this monotonous journey. And and thumbs well, up. Of course, really. Well, I'm, I'm glad. You, I mean, I'm I'm really glad people like it. You're always very nervous. You kind of fire these things these things off into the darkness, and you never really know whether you're connecting with an audience or not. So it's, it's nice to get feedback. Well, I'm glad nice to hear that people like it. I give it two thumbs up. I really oh, enjoyed good. it. Matter of fact. The the uh, the series one made a a long flight to L A and back quite enjoy <laughs> quite enjoyable. It really did. Oh, good. I that, that's the sort of thing I like to hear because now, you can make a long flight to Los Angeles palatable. You can do anything. Switch, <laughs> switch gears over to Doctor Who now. Um, okay. We had, uh, we had the honor of of speaking with uh, with Sylvester McCoy and Sophie yeah. Eldred. And uh, Andrew Cartmel back at Gallifrey 19. So oh. we were in this, this whole mindset of the McCoy era, and you, of course, are the uh, the were, were the writer on on Remembrance of the Daleks and on Battlefield and <laughs> some some really classic episodes of the McCoy era. Uh, mm. You you handled Daleks, the, probably the most legendary yes. baddies. I got the Daleks. And another Terry Nation creation. Yes, uh, I seem to be destined <laughs> to you guys do Terry are, Nation things. 
joined at the hip, apparently. And um, yes. and then handling Unit and the Brigadier and the return of Unit and what really could have been the start of a brand new Unit had the series continued. Uh, I think that was the general idea, or at least to illuminate the possibilities of a brand new Unit. Mm. Yeah, we Both wanted them- to... Sh- to show that it, would, it was an updated organization. That was the plan, basically. Both of them had some very specific visions and, and very specific um, elements that were covered in those stories, whether it be, uh, again, the, the reemergence of UNIT or uh, going into um, Remembrance of the Daleks. You were, you were looking at something that would be November 23rd, 1963. You had a very specific time and, and a, um, a set of a criteria that you had to fit that story into. What kind of challenges were you looking well, at going into that? Basically, in a funny way, challenges can make writing a script very easy. When they told me, they said, you got the Daleks, and oh, by the way, it's the 25th anniversary. Uh, good luck. And I thought, bugger. And then I thought, right, well, it's it's the 25th anniversary, which means I've got to set it in 63, so it's going to be a historical. And I've got the Daleks, so I then went off and watched every single extant Dalek episode I could lay my hands on. <laughs> and it was pretty clear from, like, episode one of the, sort of, like, the, the first story that they, they were an allegory for fascism. So you go, right, you've got fascists in 1963, and um, why are they there? Well, they have to be there because of the Doctor, because I'm fed up with the Doctor just turning up and... He just turns up somewhere and just happens to all be happening around him. So I thought, he's gone there specifically. There's a specific reason. So, and I thought, what? The Doctor has done a trap. He's trapping the day. He's got fed up with the Daleks. He's answered that question. He's answered that question that he asked himself outside the bunker in Genesis of the Daleks. And the answer is, right, these guys have got to be pruned. You know, you can't wipe them out entirely, but they've got to be certainly knocked back. And he set up this trap, and then it all goes horribly wrong. And that was basically, and after that, it really did just kind of go from there. Once I'd made those decisions, I, I, it was just brilliant. It's the most fun I've ever had. I've never had a writing experience quite that much fun ever afterwards, really. Because you're too stupid when you're first, it's my first script. <laughs> so when it's your first script, you're too stupid to know what you can't do. So you just do all these amazingly insane things that you realize later that the director was going, oh, God, no, ah, please, God, <laughs> stop this boy. But you didn't know that, so well, you I, just do it. I uh, I found that story to be a better 25th anniversary story than the one that actually wound up airing on the 25th anniversary. Mm. I, I I didn't care for Silver Nemesis as much as I liked Remembrance of the Daleks. I thought well, that I, you, you hit the I, anniversary I, elements. Uh, you hit the essence of what that 25th anniversary should have been uh, with with better marks than Silver Nemesis. I, I, I mean, I, I like Kevin, and I, I think the trouble was is that Kevin was laboring under the burden of being the 25th anniversary episode, and I wasn't. So, in a way, I, I could just get on with it. You know, I didn't have to think, oh, this is, this is the 25th anniversary episode. It doesn't have to have silver in the title. You know, I could just go and have fun. I just had tremendous amounts of fun. I really was. You know, you, can, you must imagine this is like the first ever commercial script I've ever been asked to write and it's the Daleks on Doctor Who this is the 25th anniversary and it's like ah I'm in heaven you know I just went off and did it and and when I look back at it I just as far as I can tell I just didn't I had a 
I don't know, what do you call it? Oh, um, I had a PCW, which is an abstract PCW, which is a, an amazingly archaic computer by today's standards. <laughs> and I was typing away on that, and a little dot matrix printer that was going, Eeeh! and I just had a really good time. And it was, I just had so much fun on that shoot, uh, the, the, the writing, the, the casting, the shooting, the watching, getting really, really drunk. And um, that was it. I, you know, and for me, that's, that's got to be one of the single most best experiences of my life, I would say. So I'm, I'm glad some of that actually shows on the screen well since it was a dalek story did you and terry nation uh confer at all or um did he i sent the storyline to the nation estate I, I mean you never know when you send these things off who reads it but you know you just get a kind of you send it off to uh the nation estate via the the, the hancock i think his name is who, who runs it and you know, you get the word of God comes back. <laughs> okay, or no, go away, you small, horrible person. And so we sent the storyline off to them, and they said that's fine, and that that was pretty much the extent. Uh, to clarify one thing, um, the Skara getting blown up was in the very first draft of the very first outline. It was, in fact, the third idea I had. So... I know there's some controversy about that, but actually, Scarra getting the finger was pretty much <laughs> the, the the story. It was always going to end that way. That was I, I you know, you usually know the beginning and the end of a story, and now I knew that was the end of the story. Was that Scarra was going to blow up, that, and that was in the outline document. That was a very um, uh, rough time, very tumultuous time for Doctor Who. You know, there was the, the show. Um, was in some transitions. John Nathan Turner wanted to leave. Um, Colin Baker, only a year earlier, was let go. Um, it almost seemed like there was a budgets were an issue and things like that. Did you feel anything? Uh, well, from- the, the thing is, you know, I didn't hadn't worked in television before, so for all I knew, this is the way it works all the time. And actually, to be completely honest, television is pretty much a continuous crisis. It just continues. It's, uh, television production is an insane crisis. You imagine television production is basically you have eight or nine trains on eight or nine tracks that all have to converge precisely in the right order in the middle and sort of hit each other at high speed. And once you set them in motion, you really very little you can do about it. And it's amazing to me that anything ever gets made at all, let alone well uh, and with any kind of polish. And so I have to say... Yes, it was tumultuous, but it looks much more tumultuous in hindsight. In Back in those days, we just were getting on with our jobs. We were just doing the job. We expected there to be a 28th season. We were surprised when it was cancelled, but it was being you know, squeezed. The budgets were being squeezed, and it was clear that them upstairs didn't like us at all. They just didn't like it. They didn't like science fiction. Mm. As a, mm. you well, know, that, that's... They, that's clear. Uh, listening just to to Michael Grade, uh, you know, when he was interviewed subsequently uh, about it all, and him just saying, "Well, I, I hated it, so I got rid of it." N- no matter how popular it was at the time, because we can all testify to the fact that it was still a hugely, hugely popular show. Um, well, there's a certain class of people they don't like science fiction. And nothing you can say or you can point to whatever or you can argue about 1984 and bring you until you're blue in the face and it makes absolutely no difference. They regard it as a worthless genre, completely Mm. worthless and without merit in any form. 
and they don't like it. And so therefore, they, you know, it's like me and certain types of music, which I'm not going to specify for fear of alienating people. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they just don't want it in the house. And since they own the house, they, they can kick it out. <laughs> they you can know? kick it out, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's that. basically what they did. And that's yeah. that. And, but I mean, you know, Star Cops and all the rest. Since no science fiction on BBC television for like years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And years. Mm. But I mean, yeah, the way you... Invasion Earth, which I don't like to talk about. Well, uh, very few people do. Um, but the the way that you talk about your your experience on the show is 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 one of a sense of of wonder and and one of excitement and complete enjoyment. But for me, um, if I had the chance to to write a script for Doctor Who, I, th- I think there would be every single Doctor Who fan out there would love to do it. But aside from there being that excitement and, and sheer joy of, of, of doing it, surely it must have been intensely daunting, particularly as um, it was your sort of first foray into the world of television. <laughs> I, was I, I, wonderfully, I, I was wonderfully stupid. You, you, I was, look, I was, what, 24? I was younger than the show, which was a bit daunting, I admit, when you realise <laughs> that you're younger than the show that you're writing <laughs> for. And I, I look, I had... I didn't know what I was doing. It was that, you know, too stupid to be afraid kind of thing. I, uh, in the, in, it's like the landings on Normandy in, on, in D-Day. They couldn't use two experienced troops to do it because two experienced troops just couldn't have brought themselves to run up those beaches. You had to use fairly green troops because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. And it's just like that. I was too stupid to be, you know, too stupid to be afraid of what I was doing. And I was having such a good time. It was a fun office. You know, John Nathan Turner could growl and bark and get stroppy, but he was a nice guy, you know. They were all nice guys. Morgan was a nice guy. The car, Sylvester was a really nice guy. You know, Sophie was very nice. Andrew was very nice. The other writers were very nice. I was having a good time. I was popping down in my free time down to where it was, you know, the production office, just to hang out and bask in the vibe. It was great. Mm. You know, mm. so looking back, <laughs> I go, oh, God, what was I doing? But, you know, I was having a good time and I don't regret any of it. Sure. Well, I, I, who of us would? I mean, but I, I'm just thinking from from my perspective that if 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 I had the opportunity to write for Doctor Who, of course I would. But as soon as the call, uh, first of all, you get the opportunity to to write for the Daleks and again you're told it's for the 25th anniversary not the 25th anniversary episode but for the 25th anniversary I would be you know really it would be brown trousers time for me and I think that's that's wonderful and, and why it's such a, a great episode because as as you've kind of pointed out ignorance is bliss maybe yeah, if you if it, maybe if, if you had have been completely daunted by the whole experience then it wouldn't have been such a, a classic and and to my mind one of the best um episodes of sylvester mccoy's run as the doctor um, oh, it's, it's very nice for you to say that um i i still put it down to ignorance yes it's, ignorance is bliss but it's also fun it's also because you're when it's your first script it's full of ideas and it's also quite a lot down to um, JNT and Andrew Carmel. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like, oh, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Every so often in this game, you just, just don't want to Hints do that. Hints now and then. 
<laughs> now and then. So, you know, I wasn't on my own. I was being guided. Andrew Tubb was a, a, a very good script editor. He's one of the best script editors I've ever met. He's, he's brilliant because he doesn't go, oh, it's a bit weak at the end. He goes, no, if you change line five there, then the rest of that scene will work, which is the kind of script editor you really want in a crisis. Mm. So, to be specific. Uh, it, was, it was very helpful. But also, I just didn't know I was breaking rules at well, the time. And so I broke a lot of rules. Well, obviously, they, they did like what you did. And they had you back the following year, 1989, for Battlefield. And, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's where the things started to go really wrong. <laughs> well, I enjoyed but, Battlefield a lot. I thought... I, I, and, and, so you, because you're saying it went really wrong. I'm like, well, I wasn't as happy. I don't know whether it was just because I had such a good time the first time, but Battlefield wasn't as happy an experience. I don't think it's as good as the script. I don't think the production is as strong. I mean, I think bits of it are really good. I'm proud of quite a lot of it, and I'm not very proud of a lot. And there are bits of the actual staging where I'd quite happily throttle the director. You know, not that he was a <laughs> nasty guy. But I, I just wouldn't have shot it like that. <laughs> uh, and and it just wasn't as happy. I mean, it was still fun to shoot, and everyone was very nice and everything. There wasn't like, it wasn't an acrimonious shoot or anything down in, up in Rutledge, but, it, you know, Rutland, sorry, not Rutledge. And, but it was, I don't know, I just never really was happy with the script. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is it's supposed to be the reverse of Remembrance. Right, and it's a mirror of remembrance. In that we're talking about something from in remembrance. He's, it's about the doctor's past coming back to haunt him, and in in Battlefield, it was supposed to be about the doctor's future coming back to haunt him, and it didn't really work very well. I don't know why. I think partly because the BBC wasn't very good good at doing the future mm. or medieval nightoids either. And I, you know, I don't know. I was never very happy with it. I can't watch it. I, the first time I watched it all the way through since it was first broadcast was when I did the, the commentary mm -hmm. for the DVD and it wasn't I thought I remember thinking, I thought this isn't as bad as I remember. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which so, I mean, <laughs> that uh, that DVD is slated to come out soon. It um isn't that on, on deck? Yes, that's kinda of, that, that's that's scheduled to come out. The BBC are notorious for not telling us when they are <laughs> gonna come out. So yeah. I'm afraid I don't have any more inside information than, than than you do, but yes, it's, it's scheduled to come out very soon. I know that when because we did it last year, so it must be. It's got to be flattering that that uh, Remembrance was one of the first DVDs to come out. I mean, they, that was probably in the first year of the of the Doctor Who DVDs coming out. It was something that they uh, that they rushed out as far as getting a particular episode out. So, it, it, again, it's, it's thought very highly of. And I, I wanted to make one comment that the the new series, which which I'll get your take on in a moment, uh, is a fantastic series in, in the three of our uh, opinions. But it's given some unfair credit and that you are actually the man that needs to take full credit for this. You were the first guy to have the uh, fly up the stairs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was the I wasn't the first guy to have him fly, though. Well, in live action, I think, right? In live action, we should say. Yeah, well, no, yes. No, also, they, they go up on some grav lifts in the very first episode, I think. Or well, I can't remember if it's the first one or one of the early Dalek episodes. They mm. have to chase them up a shaft. And they say, go get some grav spheres. And someone comes with some grav spheres and up they go. I don't think <laughs> you see it, but they, they say that. And also, yeah. Davros levitates when he zaps Orsini 
in uh, Revelation of the Daleks. But it's such a bad special effect, you can't really see what's going on. Well, no, okay, but, then we I should... Mean, we should say that you were the first one to have them tackle a flight of stairs. That was actually Stand. that was yes. thought number two. It went like this: yeah. Daleks, okay, have to have two sets of Daleks because we were under strict rules not to have too many human deaths on screen, and I wanted lots of action. So if I had two sets of Daleks, I could have the Daleks shoot each other mm-hmm. and blow up and have fun, which they did very well. I enjoyed that immensely too. Mm-hmm. And the second thought was. Daleks going upstairs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> going upstairs. And I, I knew that was going to be the end of act. I knew that was going to be the end of episode one. That was going to be the cliffhanger at the end of episode one. That's what I mean by writing itself. You just go, ooh, and then you know where you need to be at the end of episode one. You need to be have a Dalek going up the stairs. Well, I mean, it just goes to show you that, it, again, um, it, it, all of these things come from, from great ideas, and that, that's how the story pans itself out. But for me, that... It really is iconic because, well, we, uh, we we mentioned brown trousers time earlier, but that really as a kid watching watching that, uh, it really was brown trousers time for me because the only <laughs> single defence that you have against these things, and then they they go and and take that away from you because absolutely, you I mean. Run up. But also, it's a logic. I mean, from a purely science fictional point of view, it's a total absurdity that they couldn't go upstairs. It was well, just of course, too yeah. absurd. Mm. It was just too absurd that you had the conquerors of the would be conquerors of the universe, <laughs> and they can't go upstairs. I wasn't having that, and I thought, and I, I went through all the variations. Do they grow feet? And I thought they'll never do that, right? Do they, you know, kind of have caterpillar tracks on the bottom? And I thought, and I thought, no, they just go up there and they hover, and up they go. And I thought. That's, that's what we'll do, because that's mm. the cheapest option. Now, in Battlefield... Although, feet would have been cool. I'm sorry. In Battlefield, had mentioned it's focusing on the future, whereas opposed in um, Remembrance, it's focusing on the Doctor's past. But uh, now, speaking of the future, here you are, you wrote two stories for Doctor Who, and, and, and then, sadly, in 1989, it came to an end. And Yes, no more Doctor Who. <laughs> did you have anything in mind where was there any talks of um before they knew that it was going to come to an end um maybe writing for a future story i know you wrote some new virgin new adventure stories were any of these originally seeds or ideas no no no, none of them the, the transit peculiarly enough was the very one of the second sort of outline i wrote for doctor who but not like it was in the book it was very quite different from the book um, about the only thing that was was uh, skipped over from transit was the, the networks, the tunnel, the, the various tunnel networks, and the fact that uh, we would have uh, Caddy Adu Lethbridge Stewart, who would be Lethbridge Stewart's great 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 granddaughter, and that, that was the two elements that came over from that. Um, no, the, what we were going to do, uh, we had a lot of, we had a lot of like, you remember Mad, and they had scenes you like to see. We had a lot of scenes we'd like to see, so we had we had this insane opening where um, you, you do a kind of Doctor, you do a kind of Star Trek opening from Star Trek Two from Wrath of Khan, where you kind of pan round the various stations on a on a space station in, in a spaceship, and then you pan up and there's Ace in a uniform, and and she's flying the spaceship, and it's all part of some terrible scheme. But we you know we hadn't really got it past that. And we had a rough idea of who the new companion was going to be. And that was about really? it, really. Mm. So, you know, we, she was going to be a cat burglar, in fact. But we 
we wanted someone who had the same spunk as Ace, mm-hmm. but who would have a, a different kind of vibe. So we didn't want another kind of a copy. Cause sure. Then it would just be Ace Two, but we mm. didn't want another screamer. Yeah, so, so it was kind of like for Posh Emma... Ace. <laughs> yes, so we we wanted kind of Emma Peel, basically. I think looking back on it, we it was going to be Junior <laughs> Emma Peel. And the whole idea is this, this would be the daughter of an old-time East End gangster who'd sent his daughter to finishing school to, you know, acquire a cut-glass accent and marry an earl. And in, and, but she was desperately interested in safe cracking and all the other kind of nefarious things that he no longer wanted to be involved with. And mm. so she was actually a cat burglar. Mm. And we thought that would be fun. And, you know, but I mean, and there were lots of, you know, Robin Mukherjee was coming up with ideas. Mark Pratt was coming up with ideas. So, uh, but there, there was nothing really that definite. Mm. For, for what that season was going to be. It would have been good, though, I think, if they'd given us more money mm-hmm. and well, stuff. I wanted to, <laughs> before so, we wrapped everything up, I wanted to ask you your take on the new Doctor Who, what, what mm-hmm. Russell and, and some of the, first off, some of the writers that that were fans first and, and getting their chops and coming board as, um, as Doctor Who. I love Douglas, uh, not Douglas, Stephen Moffat. I just watched. I just watched Blink. Going, it makes no sense, but I'm terrified. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. And and then I watched. I watched the the uh, the library. Uh, Silence in the library. I thought this makes no sense, but I'm still terrified. Why is he doing this to me? And you know. And I just thought, okay, I I get I get Stephen Moffat. Mm-hmm. And and I and I love the kind of he's. The thing I liked about Russell was he, he, he does these incredibly audacious things that I would just not do in a million years, like have the companion's mother be a major <laughs> character and stuff yes. like that. Yeah. And and I just loved all that. But most of all, I just loved watching Doctor Who kick these reality shows around the schedules. It was <laughs> great. It was like, boom, take that reality show. And it was great. And That's I awesome. don't... I don't think it's too far off the mark to say that the current renaissance, and we are having a renaissance in in drama production in this country, Mm. started off because Doctor Who showed that good family drama, good family and exciting drama, British-made family drama, will kick reality shows all over the, you know, (laughs) uh, these kind of crap reality shows all over the, the, the schedules. And for that, I will forever be grateful from a professional point of view. Mm, mm. Plus, also, without that, there'd be no chance of Blake Seven getting made. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, you, in addition to Doctor Who, you also have, you know, here in the in the states, uh, you had Battlestar Galactica uh, being envisioned, and and so there's this there's what's old is new again. Mm. Yeah, this is you know, this is like a slightly creepy and disturbing thing that that even though I'm part of it, I I do sometimes wonder. Is it really good to us to be continuously recycling um, old ideas? Yeah, but it's like, if it works, it works. You know, well, here's if the it thing: work, they, it doesn't work. They won't take a chance on making something new. They'd rather go for reality television. So the sort of the compromise in the middle is okay. Well, we have a bankable name, and for someone like yourself, like you just mentioned, that Doctor Who got to give the swift kick to reality shows. If it means re-envisioning something old to get writers to work and to get sets to be built instead of having some micro cam in the corner somewhere to me it's worth it 
I just find will it start to expect strange. good drama again. Yes. But you take something like Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica is nothing. Like nothing the original like the original the series, okay? Yeah. Apart from the central premise. It is mm-hmm. in tone, in acting, in, in overall outlook. It's just nothing like the original series. And in a way, you probably could stick another label on it, call it something else, and it would have been something else. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still Battlestar Galactica. And I think, and I'm very glad they made it because I enjoyed it immensely, even when it got incredibly masochistic in the middle of season three. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, I, I'm just very glad. I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see all of it, to be honest. I like all of it. I'm, even the stuff I don't like, I'm always glad to see it. Mm. You know, I and I think I think more the merrier. That's what I say. And and J J Abrams, do your worst. <laughs> <laughs> if it is means this an hour less of reality TV, I'm totally. Oh yeah, same here. Yeah. Oh yeah. If J J Abrams kicks reality TV across the schedules in America as well, I am just cool with that. I am down with that, as they say. Looking forward to my son. I'm supposed to say that. <laughs> well, we're very appreciative that Blake Seven is now back. Yes. Us longtime fans are, you know, been um, starving for new material and, and having Blake Seven audios, which is similar to Battlestar Galactica, which is a, sort of a re envisioning, but I think it's more on target or more. It's still, it's still Blake Seven. We had mentioned before, and I, I just wanted to remind everyone that we had mentioned that you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it when it was on the um, on the Sci-Fi Channel radio series, had you mentioned, and, and BBC Seven, um, it is available on audio CDs, and we have a special yes. offer with Mike's Comics here in the U.S. for our U.S. listeners, and you can get it starting at fifty-five dollars postpaid. You can get the whole season one audio. CD which is a great value plus it has an an exclusive slipcase that it comes in and these are great audio dramas and I know our listeners appreciate audio they wouldn't be listening to us if they weren't Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know um, a lot of our listeners are um, big Finnish fans for Doctor Who audio dramas and um, and if you enjoy that, you're going to enjoy. Even if you never heard Blake Seven, if you're not a fan of the original series, or and if you are, all the more reason to uh, to give these a listen and uh, um, and and don't shy away just because you're not familiar with the material. It really brings and fleshes out the story, and it's it's really captivating. And if you just enjoy good audio dramas, I, which which I know a lot of our listeners do as well. Uh, it's just great, great drama. So, and to mm. get on this deal, we have a uh, a link, which is if you're listening to the Enhanced Podcast right now, you will have a link that you can click on uh, via iTunes that will bring you to the the special page that Mike's Comics has set up to for this offer. We'll also have uh, the links available on our website. In addition to that, if you'd rather just call, their number is, and again, this is a U.S. number, 508-756-9836. And please just mention the Podshock promotional offer price to get into, in on this deal. Ben, I have to ask um, just one question regarding okay. uh, the, the, the Blake 7 audio series. Are there plans, or is it already available over the web via iTunes or, or, or is it just solely um, available on CD or are there plans to bring it out where you can download it over the web? 
It's, at the moment, it's um, it's uh, only available as an audio CD and mm. uh, possibly uh, for future broadcasts on BBC Seven. But we would like uh, we would like to explore downloads. It's just a question of getting the licensing deals up, really, and finding hosting sites and working out a payment regime that doesn't involve us bankrupting ourselves, basically. Sure, sure. And yeah. I would like to point out to people who are, who are, who are torrenting this, uh, I know you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't mind torrenting. I haven't really got any problem with torrenting from too much from an ethical point of view. But just remember, if we don't get paid for it, we can't make any more. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I just People want should, to say that. If I'm you do torrent it... Well, uh, exactly. That. I think that's my view as well. If you torrent it, fine, but please, for heaven's sake, go out and buy the original at some yeah, stage. If you just don't undo the packet, and then maybe they'll be valuable at some point. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. Well, definitely, when they bring, hopefully, as we all are hoping here, that you do get around to making a television series, um, and then they probably will be a lot more interesting in the original well, your your audio drama, in, in essence, if it is made into a TV series. So. Yes, and but I, I think people should just buy it anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, hell yeah. I, 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 I must confess that I have yet to listen to it. It, it, is, it is on my... Get out there and listen to it list. now. Or <laughs> and I will me. listen to it, but I, 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 have, I have resisted the temptation to download it, uh, torrent it. I do... I, Definitely want to go out and buy the seed. I mean, in in a way, the torrenting is a sign that we're just not getting it out. We're not distributing it fast enough. Sure, yeah. And, and like I said, I, I live in fear that out there there is someone driving a very long distance in Arizona who could do with some proper <laughs> nothing to listen to proper <laughs> British science fiction drama and is not right. getting it. it they're, they're out there and they have to. They're subjected to FM radio. Absolutely. Instead of, instead of something good like this, I'm 100. percent I'm behind that. Well, it's spectacular, Ben. And and as a from a hardcore Blake Seven fan, I want to thank you and the rest of the B7 team for bringing back Blake Seven. It really yes. is spectacular. Yeah. Well, thank you, and I want to thank you all for having me on this lovely podcast. Thank you for being and, here. And will <laughs> you join us out. again when season two comes out? I would be delighted to join you when season two comes out. And then you can ask me all sorts of difficult questions about that as well. <laughs> well this, this time around, it was like an introduction to what's going on. Next time around, I'm going to get right into the story and comparisons with season one and, and when season two is ready to go. And I'll start getting my meat and potatoes interview out. All right. Okay. I look forward to meeting potatoes interviews. <laughs> ben Aronovich, thank you so much for joining us on The Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. Thank you, Thank so you much. very much. Cheers. Bye. Long before Farscape and Firefly, there was one show which inspired them all. Successful BBC television sci-fi program. Ah, the original Blake Seven. It's like the Dirty Dozen in space meets Robin Hood. Cracking television, best SF drama of its time. A ratings hit on the BBC in the 1970s, it even spawned an affectionate parody, Blake's Junction Seven. Mackenzie Crook dons a slinky dress as their arch nemesis Serverlan, and Martin Freeman is the hapless thief Hello? villain. Hello, I guess you were. Johnny Vegas is Blake, and Mark Heap is the treacherous Avon. We've moved. All well and good, but what the fans really crave are new adventures. Thought you were switched on. 
My name is Ross Blake. Roger Blake, the people's champion. Jenna, are you seeing this? Don't worry, Blake. Yeah. Are you okay? I couldn't help it, officer. Just came away in my hand. This ship's called the Liberator. I want to see that ship for myself. Okay, let's go for rehearsal. The long wait is finally over as Blake 7 returns. Radio lends itself brilliantly to sci-fi. It's big and cinematic. It's a three-hour epic. In a bold, reimagined series with a modern twist, a rebellion reborn for the 21st century. It's like audio blue screen. There's nothing to react to. There were flashes up there in the sky. I love radio. Like a battle. There! And the scenery is so brilliant. Will Blake's rebels live to fight on? This is one rebellion you don't want to miss out on. Don't move! Don't move! I'm falling! You know, these guys know the sci-fi. I underestimated you. It's a common mistake. It won't happen again. I hope that the Blake 7 audio goes straight to being a film and, you know, maybe it'll do 14 or 15 films and beat the Star Trek franchise. Confirmed. Alright, as promised, we're back with Mike's Comics contest for the Blake 7 uh, audio adventures. Now, the first prize, the grand prize, is Blake 7 Audio Season 1. It's a three-release Blake 7 Season 1 audio CD set. It's available from Mike's Comics, and it comes with an exclusive slipcase. There are three releases in the series, and the third comes with an extra DVD containing interviews and other extras. So that's the first prize. Then there's 10 second place uh, prizes. And that's the first CD, which is the early the, the early years, and that will be awarded to 10 people. So your chances of winning are pretty good. You just have to answer three easy questions. Now, these three questions are not based on... You don't have to be a Blake 7 diehard fan to know this. All you have to do is listen to... Well, if you had listened and paid somewhat attention to the interview with, with Ben that preceded this, you'll know what these are. In the interview, Ben uses a term to describe a soundscape or this a term that he uses to describe uh, what they call the sound design that creates visuals in the mind. What was the term he used um, to describe that process to create uh, using sound effects to paint a picture in your mind, so to speak? The other question is, um, Ben mentions that there's been X number of sequels so far. So how many sequels have been made so far that are available at this time? And last, Ben also mentions a non-science fiction series taking place uh, that was made in the 70s, I should say. What was the name of that series? A non-science fiction 1970s show that Ben mentioned. So all those answers are in that interview. If you were listening and you're paying um, somewhat close attention, you would have gotten them. If not, go back and re-listen to the interview, and I'm sure you'll find it. Once you have those questions, those answers, you need to email it, and the email address is b7, that's b as in Blake, 7 as the number 7, contest, one word, b7contest, at hitchhikersguide to British sci-fi.com. And be sure to include... Obviously, well, if you're emailing it, you'll have your return email address. But just to be on the safe side, include an email address within the body of the email that has um, an email address that you would like us to use to contact you, a phone number, and an address. Void where prohibited by law. Once again, the questions are, what's the 
term that Ben used to describe the sound design or the, the process to create a visual image in your head of what's going on in the audio dramas. That's number one. Two, the second question is how many prequels have been made so far? The third is what non-science fiction 1970s television show did Ben mention? There you have it. B7 contest at Hitchhiker's Guide to BritishSciFi.com. We'll be right back. What's that? It's a sonic screwdriver. Never fails. Drop the sonic device. Isn't my day, is it? Even the sonic screwdriver won't get me out of this one. Are you seeking Doctor Who news? The Sonic News Driver. Selected Doctor Who related news stories delivered sonically. All in a bite-sized podcast. No bigger than a jelly baby. This can function as a sonic blaster, a sonic cannon, and a triple and fold sonic disruptor. Doc, what you got? I've got a sonic cannon. Oh, never mind. What? It's sonic. Okay, let's leave it at that. Disruptor, cannon, what? It's sonic. Totally sonic. I am sonic to all. A sonic what? Screwdriver! The Sonic News Driver. Find it on iTunes or go to sonicnewsdriver.com. Who has a sonic screwdriver? I do! The Sonic News Driver. Get yours today, sonically. Neat, isn't it? Hmm? Okay, we would like to thank Ben Ivanovich for that interview. It was great having him on our premiere episode of Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. Uh, just to remind everyone that this um, podcast is for everyone, though we're suspecting we'll have a lot of U.S. listeners that are interested in British science fiction shows and series and trying to, and, and learning more about it, uh, though it's open for all listeners around the world, of course, and of course, our fellow friends in the U.K. that may already be familiar with British science fiction but want more of it. and <laughs> um, they are. And, and we want to encourage your participation in that process. If you're already a fan of British science fiction in the U.S. or the U.K. or anywhere on this world, we want to hear from you. And by that, you can send us at your comments, suggestions, feedback at our email address at feedback at Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi dot com. I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> Feedback at Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi.com. And please, if you would, in the subject line, put Hitchhikers. This way uh, we can separate that from the feedback we get as uh, Lewis, James, and I are also uh, hosts of Doctor Who Podshock. So that will kind of be able to – we can separate information Speed coming in. things up, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And if you have something that you want to present in the show, uh, you're always welcome to. If there's a topic you wish to discuss or any help as far as news goes – would be absolutely wonderful. So feel free to participate. Uh, anybody who is familiar with Doctor Who Podshock knows we are a participation, audience participation type of show. We rely on our listeners uh, for their input and they help keep us going and, and, and tip us off to things that we need to be talking about. Yeah. Listeners like you. 
we suspect that many of our Dr. Hupachak listeners will also be listeners to this podcast as well because their interests are not just to Dr. Who. I'm, I'm sure that as many of them, that they're probably fans of Life on Mars and Torchwood and, and other, obviously, British science fiction that they may have learned about through Doctor Who and uh, this is a great way to branch off into other areas and, and it's and- a way for us to cover news that we can't that we're not that we can't but that we're restricted but by we're limited to yeah to yes with Doctor Who Podchuck we, 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 we come from a very diverse background we enjoy uh, other science fiction and, and in particular British science fiction so this is our way of, of covering it and we've had some reaction from some Podchuck listeners saying be great if you guys had a chance to talk about some other things we'd love to hear your takes on it and and so here it is this is the golden opportunity yes and um and thank you for listening and yes we, thank you we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to us and um and and we can share this we're, we're fans so this podcast is for fans by fans mm-hmm. and hopefully uh, you'll listen again next time when we'll be back with more Hitchhiker's Guide to Sci-Fi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for being here for the very first episode of the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. We'll see everybody next time for episode two. Cheers. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. Brought to you in part by the New England Fan Experience, November 21st to the 23rd at the Hyatt Regency in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Visit www.nefe.us for details. This is Louis Trapani. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Trapani. This has been an Art Trap production. <laughs>